Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I am very proud to welcome Florian Hebb and Julian Kölbel as my guests. Julian and Florian are researchers at the Center for Sustainable Finance and Private Wealth of the University of Zurich, an academic research and teaching institution on a mission to mobilize private wealth to achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals. We may slightly step aside from a pure water topic this week, but you'll discover in a minute three powerful tactics impact investing shall better use to save the world. In fact, Florian and Julian will explain which kind of impact sustainable investing can trigger and how the first of the three mechanisms we'll review is very well suited to young water companies' challenges. They'll also tell us that even if impact investing worldwide is still of the same magnitude as subsidies to the fossil fuel sector, sustainable finance can and shall act as an activist of change. In our conversation, we also address how there are always seen stock funds to counterbalance green stock funds and how those perform unfortunately stupidly well. We also see how the recent Swiss referendum on CO2 law ignited by a fossil fuel company's industrial group proves that there is still a long way to go, how pension funds could leverage their long-term positions in companies to foster an attitude change towards regulation, how impact investing can grow green companies and make brown companies is greener, but also creating a special water activist fund, accelerating early water companies' growth, creating new business models, taking risks, and so much more. I really enjoyed zooming a bit out on our usual water topics and exploring a bit further finance as a blind spot of our industry. I hope you'll enjoy it too as I'm preparing you a couple more takes like this one for this summer. As always, Please share that episode with two of your friends, grab their phones and subscribe them to the podcast. And then come tell me on LinkedIn what you thought of that particular episode. Come on, do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Florian. Hi, Julian. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Hi. Hi. We were discussing just before launching this recording. I was telling you that... Uh, when you do something about finance, you expect people to come from Zurich, at least if you're in Europe. And I was wondering if that's a coincidence, if both of you are sitting in Zurich right now, or if um, it was on purpose that you came into the city of finance, at least in Switzerland. I think it's it's both a coincidence and not. I think we didn't come on purpose to, to the city of finance. No, definitely not. <laughs> we came to Zurich, both of us, to, to study environmental scientists as, at ETH. But then I would say that, that we're still here. Uh, I mean, that, that's no coincidence. So we are working the Center for Sustainable Finance and Private Wealth at the University of Zurich. And I think there's many reasons why that is in, in Zurich being kind of one of the hotspots of, of private wealth and finance in, in Europe. But so you both came to study environmental topics. So that was the, the entry point. That's how we got to know each other, yes. Yeah, like 12 years, 15 years ago. And how starting with... with such a pure endeavor solving the environment do you come with um, with this weird idea to turn into finance so for me it really started with ecology and you know you have these concepts of competition in ecology also the the word itself right ecology and economy it's kind of the the study of the house and the management of the house and and that all got me thinking you know how does this work together because still we're somehow part of the planet everything that humans do and then, you know, once you start thinking about things, you go further and further. There was a, a job I had at, at RepRisk, which is a data provider where they basically collect all the negative news about companies in terms of the environment and also social issues and make a score out of that. You know, and then I was thinking, well, that could be really powerful in terms of addressing the environmental problems we have, if we just have, you know, a system where the financial markets 
which is this big machine that, that somehow drives a lot of what happens on the planet, takes into consideration environmental information. And that's the basic idea that draw me towards looking into sustainable finance. Of course, we're both not sort of pure finance guys. We do this sustainable finance and we're excited about that idea and whether that works. <laughs> is it different, finance, sustainable finance? Is it really two different fields or is it specialization within finance? Well, I would say it's a it's blending. It's often that fields they that have nothing to do with each other at some point start to overlap. And yes, I think it took a while, but now I would say that sustainable finance is becoming a branch of finance. You're both into the um, Center for Sustainable Finance in Zurich, and I saw that it's not that long that, that that center exists. If I'm right, it's about 2015, 2016 that it was created. So is it because it's an, an emerging trend and an emerging matter, or is it just because it wasn't existing in Zurich before and now it exists? I think it has a very specific history. It all started off with our the founder, Falco Petzold, and then some other people launching a program at Harvard University for ultra-high net worth next-gen, so kind of the next generation of these super-rich families, kind of helping them to get started with impact investing. So there's many very motivated people there, but kind of they, they like the basics. And out of this program came, came the idea that, that we need an academic center to do research on, on how to have impact, you know, how to actually move the needle with money. And that's, that's how the Central Sustainable Finance at University of Zurich was then founded. You cracked the, the big name, impact. That is a topic that we addressed or we scratched the surface a couple of times on that microphone. I think especially of a discussion I had with Kimberly Baker from the Elemental Accelerator or a bit more recently with Nicolai Ravelo from Wystag Investing. But I realized when I was preparing this discussion we were having together, the three of us, that we never really defined what impact means, impact in general, and then impact investing. What's going to be your definition of that word? I think that's an excellent question. I think one that gets asked way, way too little. So, Julian, we have our own definition of impact that we use in, in our academic work, which is that, that impact is the change in a certain parameter of interest, for example, clean drinking water that is caused by your activities. I think that that sounds a bit trivial, but it has some very specific components that are rather tricky. So, first of all, something has to change. So you have to observe some change in the real world. This is a water podcast that, that could be, as I said, clean drinking water, that could be, you know, water quality in a certain lake or whatever. The hard part is the cause, that your activity causes something. So, and that's quite hard to assess. So you need to think of what would have happened without your activity. What did your activity cause above and beyond what would have happened otherwise without your activity so often this is called you know the counterfactual or the baseline or also the additionality of an action so you always need to compare kind of what happened after you did something and what would have happened otherwise and only above kind of the delta that you have there that's your impact when you mention this activity who is active is it the company itself is it the investor is it a combination of both well, I would say that's, that's actually very general. So whoever has activities, you know, lined up in front of her or him to choose from, you know, and, and, and that's the situation where you think about impact. And at some level, it's very simple. You want fresh air in the room. So one option is you open the window and then you open the window and you have fresh. So you had an impact on the climate in your room. And these are the simple cases. But the basic concept extends to, to more complicated cases. So first of all, you know, when we think about companies that operate in some social context, like, you know, let's say access to drinking water is, is the concern and the company is a business that, like a brewery that actually uses a lot of water, fresh water, and exports it away to other places, right? So as this company, you should, you know, what are your options that you can do to somehow be part of the solution that all the people that live around your factory also have enough water, right? There's a range of things that you could do. You could hand it out directly 
you could use less water, you could lobby the regulator and sort of improve the overall water management of the basin. There's many options and it's a tricky problem and it's not clear what is the most impactful action. But I think the problem is the same. You have a target, which is like, I'm making this up, right? But the target might be, okay, we want everyone in this valley to have, you know, this 25 liters minimum clean drinking water safe in your house. How do we reach that? And then you can think of what can you contribute towards that goal? I think that's the essence of having impact, thinking along those lines. I think figuring out what the effect of a company on the world is, is quite a tricky endeavor in itself. But what stood out to us when we started research on the impact of sustainable investing is that we have two steps. I mean, with investing, it gets even more complicated because obviously you need to know what the companies you're investing in are doing in the world. But more importantly, I would even say you need to figure out what your effect as an investor is on you know, a given company. So if you take this brewery, you know, how do you contribute to or change what this company is doing? So that's why we came up with the definition of impact. You know, we, we provide this very generic definition that sounds maybe a bit wordy and complicated. But in terms of investing, we, we have a very clear definition of what your impact as an investor is. So we define company impact, which is the effect the company has on the world, and investor impact which is kind of the change in company impact and investor causes. When we speak of company impact, there is another acronym which comes quite regularly. It's this ESG. Can you define this ESG? And all these things usually work by three. So we have ESG, but we also have the triple bottom. So these economic, societal, environmental factors. And I was wondering if, if there's a difference between those two, because we, we, we talk of sustainable investing and we talk of ESG. And is that exactly the same thing? Or is there some nuances between those two different concepts? I would say rather than nuances, there's general vagueness on what it is. And that's natural. You know, ESG is generally about what do companies do? with regard to the environment, social issues, governance issues, sort of the generally the question, you know, how do they behave? And then it's natural that this becomes vague because then what are all the social issues we care about? Child labor, perhaps water is half an environmental, half a social issue. How do we measure them? You know, how important are they relative to each other? So, so that all those questions make it difficult and vague. What exactly is ESG and SDG? And that's a problem. How do you sort of come up with, with sound ways of assessing that? But I think what's very clear is that ESG, triple bottom line, it's about the company. And it's generally, you know, it, it can be about company impact. That's generally what it addresses. And investor impact is then something that comes on top. So if you could look at the change in ESG as a sort of rough proxy, right? But simply saying, and this is what we sort of, try to make very clear is that you just simply say, well, here's a company with good ESG rating. I'm invested. Hence, I, as an investor, have changed the world. I think that is a statement we would always counsel to avoid because it's wrong. If I was to play the devil advocate now just for one minute, you gave us now some elements. You say ESG might be vague because everyone can a bit see what he wants to see in this ESG. And you also said ESG rating. If I'm a company that wants to, to paint itself green, I can use my own rating and be wonderful. And by another kind of, of angle, I might be a bit less good. Do you think this is one of the reasons why it's a bit vague? It's because that way every, everyone can create his own rules? Or am I really looking at things with now a, a very negative view? I think one point I think we have to say, I think these ESG ratings, I think that they were born kind of mainly of, of out of a risk perspective. The financial markets have learned that there is the concept of risks in, in many ways. And, and I think in the early 2000s, there came this perception that there's also, you know, material, environmental or social risks. So these, these, these metrics were used to measure these kind of risks. I mean, how likely is, you know, that companies getting sued because so some social problems they have or, you know, that they cause environmental disasters and so on. So I think think that's maybe one point to have to realize. It, it's not necessarily, ESG is not necessarily saying how green a company is, but kind of how it manages its environmental risks. 
we did a study called aggregate confusion, the divergence of ESG rating. So it's a topic that I've been working on quite a bit with colleagues at MIT. And it's, you know, it's natural that you come to different conclusions because it's such a multifaceted issue that you're considering, right? ESG alone, environment, social governance are three vast topics. What are the criteria within those topics that you look at? How do you weight them? How do you measure them? These are all questions that aren't clear. I mean, it's not obvious how you will do that. And so it's on the one hand natural that different providers come up with different ways of doing this and it has grown historically. On the other hand, as you rightly point out, it, it does also cause problems then. And I think the the most severe problem is actually at the company level where companies say, okay, you know, let's become, you know, a really good company. But they also want to be rewarded for that. So they want to then look good in the ratings. And it's difficult to figure out how you do that. So there's really a measurement problem here. But I think, you know, I don't want the perfect be the enemy of the good. So, yes, we say they diverge, but still, you know, it's an important issue. And they're also, in most cases, not completely off. Right. So so they, it is a helpful data point. You just have to be aware that there is some uncertainty left if you use these metrics. And then impact, if I may transition, right, sort of ESG was kind of the, I would say in the past has been a lot about ESG and as Florian said, focused on risks. And I think this impact story is becoming way more important now. And that basically means often that you try to tie everything to SDGs, to the sustainable development goals and to some extent. And that's a trend that I see happening right now. First, it's a very valid point you you make. It's something we discussed with Paul O'Callaghan on that microphone where he was explaining that good enough approaches might solve much more than always to say that better and better and better and perfect can be achieved. I mean, done is better than perfect. So um, I fully subscribe to what you just explained. You allude now to the SDGs, which is something you're right, which is in all the conversations. Is it something new or is it a clever way that we've put on the table to just measure what we have to achieve in which direction we have to go. I mean, in the water sector, we all now talk about SDG 6 to a point which is maybe even over the top. I mean, there's no single company speech who doesn't include how we are leaning towards SDG 6, whereas one can argue that we are doing many stuff in the day and that probably not 100% of it is going into this SDG 6 direction. So is that, again, another concept? So we would have impact, ESG, SDG, and, and maybe by the next calendar of the United Nations, there's, there's a new acronym, or is it like a marketing tool? I, I mean, how, how would you see that SDG element? I think it has all the aspects you just mentioned. I think, first of all, I mean, we said, you know, impact is changing a parameter. We have one problem. I mean, that is, you know, there's like thousands of people out there with thousand views on what should be changed in which direction. So I think there the SDGs really help. They provide, you know, a global common view on where the world should move. And, and that's something you can use to track impact. I mean, are you making progress towards, you know, commonly agreed, clearly defined targets? So I think in these this aspects, certainly I think, think SDGs will remain. And, and what we see in, in, in the finance world is that the SDGs, they become really popular. So currently there's like a proliferation, I would even say, of SDG mapping, you know, exercises of taking portfolios and mapping all the companies to which SDG they co could uh, contribute. But again, I see currently I see in this respect two major issues that we need to work on. That's also what we say in our research. You know, owning impactful companies is, is not the same thing as having impact. We often see that people map companies in their portfolios to, I don't know, this company contributes to SDG 6 or this contributes to, to many other SDGs. So, as we explained before, this is company impact at best. You know, this doesn't explain. I mean, if you invest in that company, you don't have. Let's say we have a company that really contributes to to, to SDG six. If you invest in the company, you don't necessarily contribute to you know this impact or make them have more impact. What it says is that you have exposure to SDG 6. And I think these are really different concepts. I mean, it may be very valid if you as an investor think, okay. 
future lies in water. You know, there's, there's going to be a lot of more, you know, also regulation issue, uh, action and so on that pushes the water sector. So I want to have exposure, but that's not the same as actually, you know, helping the world reaching the SDGs faster. So let's dig into that impact because I'm sorry, I sidetracked you a, a lot, but how can finance itself have an impact? We've seen how the company can have an impact. Let's look now at, at finance. What are the mechanisms that an investor can have to have impact on a company and hence be the tool of the market impact? I think there are two, well, three major ways in which that works. So the first one is there are companies that have a business model that by what they do, they have a positive impact on the world. Like, you know, let's say a company that produces and distributes mosquito nets, which is then important to prevent malaria. Okay. And even local employment, right? sort of all, you know, it's really a good idea if that company would grow. And now sometimes companies, especially in, uh, in developing markets, have a problem to tap into capital that allows them to grow, right? I mean, they can, of course, grow operationally, but they can grow much faster with external financing. And sometimes they don't have that external financing. And then if you go in as an investor and you provide that external financing, then because of your investment, you know, there's so many more mosquito nets distributed. And, you know, that's, that's how you can have an impact by growing companies that doing something good uh, doesn't have access to capital. You can solve a problem here. And that's a bit limited to small companies who actually need financing. It usually that's sort of pretty rare for larger companies, you know, listed equities and, and, and so forth. So it's a bit, you know, but that's also the classic impact investing space, you know, smaller companies. We call it growing green companies as a very generic term. Access to capital for growing green companies. That's a first lever. And you said there are three levers. So what, what would be lever number two? The second lever is, you know, making companies greener. As a shareholder, you own stocks or you own part of the company. So you can engage with, with, with companies and, and try to change whatever they do in a certain direction. In these cases, there is evidence that investors can change how green these companies are. So not how fast they grow, but how they go about their business. I mean, the option is, is their shareholder engagement, so really entering into a dialogue with, with top management on, on you know, how, how their environmental policy should look like. There's voting. Every shareholder in mo most countries can vote on shareholder resolutions. It's a bit tricky depending on local legal systems, but you can vote. This second mechanism, I would, we call it you know, making brown companies becoming greener. It maybe works best where, where companies are not the greenest to start with. On that second mechanism, there were many interesting stuff in your, in, in your research paper. I just highlighted a couple of them just to be sure I understand it right. If I get you right, it would take only 8% of sustainable investing in this capital allocation from brown to green to solve the climate challenges. Is that right? That's not our research. No, but I think beside this research, I think that's that that's one paper of, I think it's Golier and Pouchier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, here things get a bit tricky, I would say. <laughs> we, we talked about two ways, you no, know, giving capital companies to grow and then engaging with companies to change. Now, there's also way, another way how you can make companies to change, but with capital allocation, you know, if you apply some rules saying, look, I only invest in companies that meet certain ESG levels or ESG standards that may provide incentives for companies to reach this standard. Because if, you, if many investors allocate according to the same rule, that, that will push up share prices a little bit for these companies and then provide managers an incentive to adopt these standards. So that's, that's the thinking behind. And, and in, in, in very recently, there have been a, a whole host of models by top-notch economists kind of going in this direction, stating actually if investors have environmental social tastes, this should create incentives for companies to change. And this, the, the, the 8%, that's just one model on under give some assumptions that, that comes to the conclusion if 8% of investors would, you know, have some, some climate preferences, you know, it, it could companies make 
measures the cost them up to I think five percent or something like that of, of of the revenue to change. But I think what's important here is these are all theoretical models. So the, the question is what what happens in the real world, and, and what I find striking is you know if you look at the real world. In Switzerland, just had a market report on on sustainable finance. I think 50% of all the funds apply some sustainability strategies in their investment process. So if you look at that, you would assume that we're already far above, you know, this 8%. But somehow we still don't see the change, you know, needed to move really to reach the SDGs or or solve climate change. So I think there's this discrepancy between kind of this model projections and and what we see in the real world. That's something also we're doing research on. If I recall your research regarding this investment into sustainability from the investment funds, it's also a matter which comes a bit back to what we were saying in the beginning on the ESG ratings, is that if everyone has its own mechanism and way to rate the market, you can have half of the investment funds having sustainable investing in their vision of the world and the way they, they, they work, but they might be pushing in opposite directions so that it may be counterproductive. I mean, what fund one is doing is balanced by what fund B is doing. So that means if you don't have a, a consistent grid to read the word and to read the ESG impacts, you can have all the people doing sustainable investing, but with their own glasses. Yeah, that's true. That So disagreement about which firms are brown and green will weaken the effect. I think these models acknowledge that usually, and, and, and there are models. So this 8% statement, it basically says, well, if 8% of global investors, everyone, you know, uh, including all sovereign wealth funds, would completely exclude fossil fuel companies. I think that's what they mean. And that clearly is not the case. Right. I think, I mean, there are there are fossil fuel divestments, but I, I don't have the numbers, but I don't think it's anywhere near this 8% of the global market. Now, if it were to reach that point, I think in our research, we, we sort of identify two key things uh, to think about. The one is, you know, how big will be the, the change in share price? So you could imagine the share price of Exxon, for example, to sort of deteriorate. No, maybe by 5%, maybe 10, maybe 50. We don't know. Really, we don't know. But that's one important parameter to think about. And then the other one is what is the cost for Exxon to become eligible again for the big pool of green investors? And and basically then it's it's a simple calculation. As soon as you sort of, you know, you gain more in firm value by investing X dollars to become a different firm, then the assumption goes managers should do that. But our impression is that this doesn't happen very much, especially on the big tickets, right? So I think a good example to look at is tobacco. Tobacco is one of the most widely screened industry in in sustainable investing and since a long time already, right? Most sustainability funds do not include the tobacco industry. But the cost, of course, for the tobacco firm to become a non-tobacco firm is absolutely prohibitive. I mean, there's no way they can grow out of that. And even now, you know, there's innovation, smokeless smoke and, and, and these things, which may have merit, but I haven't seen a single sustainability fund who says, well, okay, now we accept tobacco. I think the screen is still there. So does this incentive really work? Especially for the big tickets, right? It's more on the small improvements, I think that's where I see it working more. That's what I understood reading your paper is that you can have more impact if you're aiming a company to change something which is not very costly. So it it speaks a bit along with what you said before, which is we should not aim for perfection, but to do a bit better. And if we do a bit better step by step on the long run, you achieve it. But if you go directly for the big step, you just don't have sufficiently lever to make it happen. Regarding this appreciation, depreciation, is it exactly working the same way for appreciation and depreciation? Or is one of the two directions easier or more efficient to leverage? Hard to say, I would say. I, I would say generally it's the same effect. But I think what's always important to, to consider is, you know, as Julie mentioned, if you, if many investors go out of, of fossil or let's say tobacco, I mean, then, then tobacco shares 
drop and there is in kind of evidence that they're they're lowered so currently because many investors share kind of that that preference or that rule or if you you know let's take tesla if you go everybody wants to buy tesla obviously share prices go up a bit but obviously the problem you face i mean that's not for free you know if many investors invest in tesla just because they like electric cars then it will drive up share prices way beyond fundamentals so there will be, you know, a lot of analysts being there saying, oh, now we have, you know, Tesla is, you know, overvalued. So we'll sell. So I think that's, that's, that's an important point to see about, you know, these public stock markets. There's always, as soon as something drives up prices a little bit, you know, there's an opportunity for arbitrage. And also in the other ways around, as soon as, you know, something drops prices. So, I mean, for Tobacco, I mean, there is sin stock funds. They perform pretty well because of that, because many investors have the taste, so share prices are a bit down, so you get them, you know, cheaper than what, what fundamentals would actually kind of demand from such stocks. Which brings the question of what's the size of sustainable investment compared to the overall finance market? Because if they are green-minded funds and, and sin stock funds, how do they balance? And in your paper, you cite a number of 30 billion US dollars for the, the overall sustainable investing. Is that the right figure? I think it's 30 trillion. So you have to add three zeros, which is okay. an enormous sum to say. But then again, that's a very you know generic thing, sustainable investing. So you have to look into details. What do these products actually do? Okay, but 30 trillion fully changes the picture. Sorry, I misread that one. Because, you know, I was having this, this number of about 300 billion US dollars, which are spent in supporting the, the fossil fuel economy one way or the other through various policies. So I was thinking if that's still 10 times higher, but it's not 10 times higher. If I get now your, now your new number right, it's 100 times smaller. So it's so good news. Good news. But at the same time, what was the number you mentioned for fossil subsidies or support? According to the International Energy Agency, in 2019, we had 320 billion US dollars of support to the fossil fuel economy, which is down. It used to be more, but still it sounds almost anachronic, you know, in, in 2021 to see that we still have 300 billions of subsidies to, to that sector. If you look at, at these global numbers, the same report where we have these 30 trillion of, of sustainable investing from, if you look at, at the amount of impact investments, you know, so really investments with the intent to generate impact rather, as we say, you know, with this aim of growing small green companies, that's only something like 450 billion. So that's interesting to see. I mean, that kind of money actively trying to grow green companies is maybe counterbalanced with money actively trying to keep the, the, the fossil industry alive. You were mentioning the risk and you were mentioning ESG to be driven by risk, but somehow disrupting the way you look at the market, such as transportation or energy or water, is also a risk for, for the economy. So I can understand that there's activists or sustainable impact investing on one end, but there's also people that say, hey, I hate disruption. I want things to be steady and as they were because that's a safe investment. I think that's a discussion I had with uh, Nicolas Lerabello on that microphone. We were saying that if you're a pension fund, the last thing you want is to have a risk that your, your pensions of a full country gets disrupted because you, you invested in a sector which is going to vanish. So yeah, I, I see different forces which are at play and that might be playing against uh, each other's. On that point, I think we want to draw a real clear boundary around, you know, what types of impact can you even have as an investor in principle, right? And I think the thing is, as an investor, you act within the system of capitalism. Right? You are, you know, by definition, a capitalist, right? You're sort of providing capital, you're taking stakes. So you're working within the system, that's why we say, well, you know, you can achieve a lot of incremental changes as an investor and you can accelerate them and, and they are valuable. But there are some issues that require political change. You know, there, there's not a commercial solution, you know, for every problem we have. Definitely not. There are many commercial solutions that thrive on, you know, wrong incentives that are politically generated. I think, you know, when we think of carbon emissions, I think there has to be a regulatory response. Sustainable investing cannot stop climate change on its own. It can help, 
but not on its own. So sustainable investing plays within the system, with perhaps one exception, and I was I thought about that because of the fossil fuel subsidies, right? We say, you know, divesting tobacco or fossil fuel stocks, you know, we're, we're unsure about the impact there because the incentive to change, it's hard to make a case for that. But if the University of Cambridge, for instance, says, okay, we're out of oil, which I think they did, they said uh, recently, it's also a political message. It is a message that this leading, you know, world-leading university has concluded that this is a sector that's somehow inconsistent with the future of the university and, 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 and that they are committed to building a future that looks very different. And then all of a sudden, if you, the University of Cambridge says that, it sort of moves the goalposts. So it's not a crackpot idea anymore to say, well, you know, the future is going to be very different. You know, now the University of Cambridge is saying that, and also maybe an insurance company or a pension fund is saying that. So it, it is also political. And we see, you know, these proponents of fossil fuel divestment, I think they themselves concede that, you know, there's not really an economic effect. It's a political tool, you know, to generate attention and also to hopefully bring on the way regulation that then ultimately has an impact. Julian, that's exactly the third mechanism that we didn't discuss yet that you mentioned in, in the beginning. And I think to just, I mean, to, to sum a bit up, well, you, you ask about, you know, what can sustainable investing do? We see three different things can do and each has its, its limitations, you know. First of all, you know, investors can grow green companies, but it's limited to, to smaller companies, emerging market, financial frictions. That it's, That's not, you know, the big bulk of money, but, you know, small portion of money can, you know, change very specific things locally and have, have a huge effect there. But that's not going to change, you know, the large world economy. Then there's, you know, we said investors can make companies greener. But then we also said, but that only really works if, you know, if you aim for, you know, small step-by-step -step improvements. So if, if many investors do that and push for that, that's, that's going to move the needle, but it's not going to cause a transformative change. We need to go to net zero in, in 2050, for example. And then we say, I mean, even by, for example, divesting from, from certain industries, even, even doesn't really directly affect these industries that can, you know, affect the political discourse. But again, that only works if you are very, very public, you know, if you do your announcement very publicly, if you're an investor that has some, you know, some standing in the public to start with. And I think if, if you take that all together, I think it really sums up that sustainable investors can do a lot to, to move in a certain direction, but they cannot solve problems on their own. They, they need regulation. And I think... This is something we increasingly see, that this is a very crucial topic. And you, you ask about the pension fund. I mean, the interesting thing, I think, is a pension fund has, you know, maybe average beneficiary has to wait 30 years getting his money back. So they have a long-term vision. They're usually diversified. So basically, most pension funds, they invest in the rural economy, maybe overweighting the local economy, but, you know. So such investors would have, you know, all incentive to, to solve common pool problems. They, they would have all incentives to, to, you know, to stand in for tough regulation for a current price because, I mean, looking at the science, we know that we all would be better off in 30, 50 years if we have tough regulation now or stringent regulation now. And I think this points at, you know, that the investors could have a very stronger voice in demanding stringent regulation of, you know, compool problems of, of free riding externalities, for example, um, climate change. And I think that's a huge thing that could change. And also, Julian, you mentioned this divestment movement. I think there's unfortunately also a movement on the other side. I think there's a lot of political lobbying of current fossil companies to stop environmental um, regulation. We just, in Switzerland, just... Um, lost a public referendum on CO2 law. And there's many reasons why this population rejected the laws. But I think it, it is striking that the referendum itself was launched by a kind of an industry association group, which, which was dominated by fossil companies. And here, I mean, investors are the owners of companies. These pension funds own a lot of these fossil fuel companies, and they cannot just tell them, you know, keep the oil in the ground, that, that won't work. But maybe investors could demand from, you know, these, these incumbent companies that have to change, they stop lobbying against required regulation. 
there are many elements in what you just said. First, I, I love the irony of discussing with finance researchers based in Zurich and explaining me that we should be illiberal, that the, the market cannot regulate itself. That was really just to be now the devil's advocate. But in your paper, you also show how if you're a company in a scene industry, there's not a strong incentive to do yourself a bit better because your industry itself is still going to be seen and cursed to be uh, the, the, the bad guy. And, and the third element is something which was very interesting in the sustainability puzzle, which is the, the, the book from Alice Schmidt and, and Claudia Winkler, because they, they show how if you have system thinking and you just zoom out, all of this makes sense even for um, an oil and gas company to say, if I look at the bigger scale and I look on the long run, I will have to change. But if you keep being narrow focused on what you're doing currently and for the next five years, then of, of course, there, there's no strong path to victory in the change itself. So I'm not going to sidetrack fully the discussion to say, uh, is it the limit of, of, the, of the Swiss democratic uh, system to ask the population for long-term vision when it's probably easier to explain why the arguments are good for the next five years. So not going to sidetrack here. But we have these three mechanisms which play their role. So give capital to this green company, make brown greener, or this activist element of being going into indirect direction. What is the strongest one, if you have to pick one? <laughs> that's, that's a hard question, because mainly because they do entirely different things and, and are really hard to compare. So it has to be a mix. You know, as a... Um finance guy, I would advise to diversify over these three mechanisms because <laughs> all of them are uncertain. Right? If you, I mean, no, no, I mean, it's dead serious. If you're, you know, if you want to have an impact as an investor, let's say you're a private person, you are fortunate to have some savings and you want to invest them in a way that you don't want to sort of completely lose them. So you don't want to do charity and just give them away. You want it to be an investment for your own future, but you also want this investment to have positive side effects on the world. Okay, and then I would exactly do these three things. I would start with uh, growing green companies. Here is a question of how much risk are you willing to take? This is something that's not super easy to do because you sort of have to look for specialized providers. And uh, it's risky because these are small businesses that might go bankrupt uh, or they are in countries that might just sort of collapse politically and, and then your investment is gone. Uh, and so you have to be aware of that and decide how much of my portfolio am I willing to contribute to some sort of risky bucket. And then you can go with that risky bucket and look for the you know most convincing products out there or even do direct investments. And then with all the rest, which is probably going to be in public equity, bonds, maybe land and metals, you know, but for the for the stuff that's related to companies, I would try to find a fund that has, as an institution, a convincing approach to engaging with companies, sort of push for change, and also a very clear kind of framework on, on what is how they assess companies. So to make both effects work, like both the sort of the voice effect, but also then this sort of exit where you say, well, this is, you know, this is the red line. If you, if you don't achieve that within three years, we're, we're simply out. So, you know, sort of some, uh, an institution or a fund that sort of really hits this effect. And ideally they even themselves know how to explain how they are impactful. We, we haven't seen a lot of funds that do that, but I hope they're, they'll get there soon. That's what I would do with all the rest. And then as a third thing, I would, you know, think about who am I, who who listens to me, and tell people about what you're doing with your investments and why. That may be your family, that may be your workplace. I don't know who that will be. Maybe you are very famous. Uh, you know, if one of these, like if Cristiano Ronaldo did this, I think it will be extremely impactful, uh, right? So I would use the third channel as well, according to your means, obviously. I mean, basically, Julian, what you're saying is, is if you look at, at how most portfolios of, of, of investors are structured, it just makes sense to do everything you can and, and to diversify because you have, you know, very risky small investments, very small buckets, and you have all these large companies in there anyhow. Capital allocation is maybe not the thing to go, but rather change. 
let me suggest you a, a last section in this deep dive to put back my, my water goggles and, and my water hat. I was looking for the numbers in terms of money that flows to the water sector. And um, I found contradictory sources, but still it will give us a, an order of magnitude. In his TED talk, Sona Lutra, which is the CEO of Water Canary, was saying that uh, about 0.12% of the uh, early VC investment, early VC money goes to, to water. And he was citing a CB Insight source for that. I did my own calculation with Blue Tech Research numbers and the OECD's numbers, and I was coming to this 0.7% of money which flows to the water sector. So my interpretation of that would be to say that there's not that much of the first pillar you were citing, which is pushing these green companies which are emerging. And on the other end, we have the finance market and the stock market for water, which is quite high right now, which means water companies are expensive on the market, which sounds to me like the financial sector would say, hey, this is resilient, this is sturdy, and this is going to the right direction. Let's invest into that. So is it another simplification to say that, generally speaking, the finance market is not playing that much on the first mechanism for the water industry and quite a lot with the second lever? And do you think there would be chances to move a bit the needle and to push a bit more for investing into early stage water companies, which might be able to solve issues like SDG 6 or SDG 9 or SDG 15? Hmm, good question. I mean, I have to say, we, we just did a research project together with a water accelerator called Sevas. So this was our colleague, Theon Kwan, worked with them. Exactly working on the topic, why? I mean, is, I mean, Sevas, they work with you know startups mainly focused on Middle East and, and other countries which we could classify as, as, you know, kind of not perfectly working capital or not perfectly efficient capital markets. How, how these startups could scale, and they usually they face a lot of problems receiving finance. Kind of, and they were working on the reasons why and and how that could change. And certainly, I think water startups often do not have you know a, an easy start because often you know they they serve populations that do not have you know a high ability to pay or you know they work in in serving government where which which has its own you know tricking things or working large infrastructure. So, yeah, I think this is a huge topic in itself, but certainly I think there could be much more investment there. I think water is an example where I'm not sure if that's the bottleneck for, for that sector to get ahead. Water is just the ultimate common pool resource. And, and a lot of what happens is just really dependent on, on how it's regulated. And the price of water is absolutely central, of course, right? You know, you can invest and bet on an increase in the price of water. You know, in, in the U.S. with water rights, you, you can do that in other places potentially as well if you invest in a utility. But there's always this big political game around, you know, where should the price of water really go, right? Of, because then if it goes up, then the investors cash in. And yes, people will start conserving water, but also there's going to be a crazy political backlash from all sorts of constituencies who, you know, who say, well, hey, you know, we, we need water. And politically, that's a pretty powerful message. So I think personally, the water sector is a really difficult one to invest in. I, I think there are probably very good opportunities. There are Definitely, we need good solutions, but I think without progress on the regulatory and, and political front, we're going to see the same problems that we've seen for the past decades uh, simply continue in many ways. You know, there is a case for water savings technology, especially in agriculture, but in the places where there's little water, it has been, you know, it has been implemented to, to a large degree already very often. Let me come back to your, you know, your statement about startups and publicly listed companies in, in the water sector. I think startups, it's a really hard sector to found a successful startup, right? If you think about who you compete with, you compete with people who sort of invent Skype, the next Skype, right? Sort of it's, it's a bit of software and you can scale to billions of people. You never have this, I think, with water. Like it's always very local. 
it often entails sort of investment in infrastructure that, you know, all that makes it really difficult to found a startup in water. And, and that makes it unattractive to the, uh, to the venture capitalists, I think. It's a bit of chicken and egg here, because if you look at infrastructure, the way it's done, I've, I'm fully with you, fully agree. Now that has been endemically grown from what the Romans and the Greeks have been doing millennia ago, but we could be having something fully decentralized. I mean, I had on that microphone, for instance, uh, Nafkaran Singh Baga, who's the CEO and founder of ACFO, Atmospheric Water Generation Systems. And that's just an example, not to say that that is the solution for, for everything. But if you're in a tropical zone, which is about a zone where 3 billion people live in, the, in this world, you have good conditions to generate water from air wherever you are at about 10 times less money than bottled water. And there's at any time in the air about 1.5 the Geneva Lake of water. So that is a fully distributed solution. And he is looking at a way to do it as a service. So you could be imagining to have a rapid a distribution of his machines or similar machines, really not doing um, Nafkaran's advertising here, but he was a cool guest. So I have to, to put him a bit in the light. And that means that you could have this path to, to hyper growth. That's suddenly possible because you invest, you burn money because you put your devices everywhere and then you run them as a service. And then it's, it's not Skype, sure. There's still a hardware element in it, but it has similar patterns to how the word of SaaS works today. I think that is a beautiful example, you know, for a potential impact investment. Of course, you would have to sort of look at that in the detail. Does the, you know, would, could it really work before you commit your money to it? But I think that's what we would love to see is, is that there's broadly in the population, there's a lot of people who want to have some impact with their money. And I think it could be very powerful if they said, well, okay, 1% of what I do is, is going towards something very risky like this water capturing project. It, no one has ever tried it before. We honestly, you know, it's uncertain if this will pan out, but we are willing to risk our money to see whether it works out, right? Because if no one does, you know, it will never see the light of day. And that would be great if more of that would happen. But I think, again, I mean, coming back to a regulatory environment, I think, Julian, you already mapped it out for water that's really local and really, you know, patchy. So I think that's, that's the interesting thing about climate. I mean, there's like a whole boost of climate startups because I think that the global regulatory environment is, is at least moving in direction where, you know, you can be rather certain that you're going to get paid to some extent for reducing carbon emission. I mean, voluntary carbon markets are, are skyrocketing. Um, you have emission trading systems popping up. So, I mean, there's kind of, it's always the same same problem if you do innovation and, 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 you know, startups in a way where you solve externalities. In some way, somebody has to pay. Here, of course, to a certain extent, impact investors can jump in and say, okay, I, I'm going to accept, you know, lower returns, high risk, but they're not going to change the, the fundamental problem. You know, if you, if you solve, you know, water is a common pool. So, so the willingness to pay is often not that high. But there is interesting, you know, financing mechanisms. I talk about result-based finance, so which we basically have with carbon markets. I mean, if you have a good project that reduces CO2, you can get, you know, financed by that. Could also be used in the water sector. So our colleagues at, for example, Roots of Impact, they're pioneering what they call SYNC. So, you know, outcome-specific payment looking for payment contracts with companies that achieve you know some milestones and they have applied that to to the wastewater sector for example with, with the logic in some developing countries i mean they nobody's willing to pay or the government is not willing to pay yet for you know the service of, of cleaning wastewater but in a few years likely that that will be the case or in the future so they're jumping in and it's often development financing corporations that it jump in and say, okay, we're going to pay you for that externality. We pay you a price per, you know, cubic meter of treated wastewater contractually over the next 10 years. And once you have set up that and have set up a system, have, you know, run a successful business model with, you know, with getting paid for the externalities, it's much more likely that the government will jump in later on and, and then really pay for solving that. 
it's somehow coming back to this topic of risk because you could, ter- I mean, look at the, the International Space Station. They, they work with one glass of water per day. So you could be solving the full water scarcity problem on Earth by just saying, let's reuse everything. Of course, it is by far not economical, so it's not going to happen. But you can move a bit the needle, so it's a bit more economical in some regions. And that way, water scarcity gets somehow mitigated because you reuse on several passes the same water. But I could keep pushing for another two hours here on that topic, but I'm cautious every time. <laughs> I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I'm going to try to keep the questions short. And if you can keep the answer short as well, uh, we will have a back and forth. And don't worry, I'm the one which sidetracks all the time. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? I mean, for me, in, in our common work with, with Julian, it's certainly our investor's guide to impact. Uh, because it really enabled us to to take like four years of research, putting it in, into a very visual way. And I'm really happy that it resonates with, with many practitioners. People saying, ah, now that makes it clearly understandable, like a very complex topic. So it really moves the conversation. I'm really happy about that. Yeah, I completely agree. It's, it's that work on investor impact because somehow we address this big question what does that sustainable investing trend really do? And I don't think we have, you know, all the answers, of course, but we have some some good ideas. And that was really nice to also then pass on these ideas to, to lots of people who really care about this and appreciate it that we put the work in. What's your favorite part of your current job? It's actually, um, well, the best thing is to think with Florian about the next thing that we would like to do. It, it contrasts very nicely with the things that we've already signed up to that we have to finish. So, but talking about the next thing is my favorite thing. Completely agree. Yes, <laughs> it's catching out the big ideas. So I'm curious from your financial eyes uh, about the trend that you see, which we should watch out in the water industry. Hmm. How to say? I mean, I think there will be a lot of development in, in innovative financing you know, mechanisms to tackle water issues. That's uh, something I'm really curious about. But here, our colleague Theon Kwon would be a really interesting person to talk to. Thanks for the suggestion. It's interesting that you mentioned that because a lot of my, my guests have mentioned that we have to be innovative with the business models and the, the way we look at, at that part of the market. And the other side of that same coin is that we're an industry which is full of water engineers. So we are probably not the best to come up with innovative ways to finance and to have clever business model. So there's probably some synergies to find here. What is the thing you care about the most when you start on a new project? And what is the one you care the least about? So one thing we figured out would be good at the start is to think what is a misconception that is severe in terms of its consequences and many, many people have it that we can rectify Right. If, if you can do that as a social scientist, I think you have really impact in the, you know, in the true sense of the world that you uh, change the way, like sort of change the way people think about problems in a good way. So that's something we care a lot about. And the least, bah, I couldn't say what I care the least about, but, but this is the thing we focus on. And then the rest <laughs> uh, is, is after that. Do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the latest trends? Certainly. I mean, uh, that, that's a bit advertisement in our own, you know. <laughs> have a look at our Investor's Guide to Impact. Have a look at, at our paper titled Can Sustainable Investing Save the World? Reviewing the Mechanisms of Investor Impact. That's basically what we discussed today, it, its contents. And on, on the CSP's homepage, I mean, there's a, we always publish our latest um, research. I saw that you also have a quite active medium. Yes, we have a medium block where we, we kind of have more kind of, you know, opinion pieces on where things are going or could go. It's a very interesting read that I would really advise to the people listening to this. It doesn't get sufficient claps in my opinion. So if you're on medium, just give it a look. I'll put the, the link in the show notes. And um, 
I think you somehow already cracked it, but would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite on that same microphone? Well, we would warmly recommend our colleague Theon Kwan, who has done a research project into how water entrepreneurs and impact investors find together or not. And I think she'll have a lot of interesting things specifically for your show. That's the main person I can think of. Maybe also, I think it would be maybe interesting to, I mean, this she does did a large project together with this SEVAS I already mentioned, the, the Accelerator Water Startup. So maybe you could talk to them jointly because I think we, we now gave you a, a rather, you know, top level view on impact in financial markets. The people at SEVAS, they're much more concerned with, you know, kind of the daily struggles of, of real life startups in the water sector. So they have a completely different perspective. And I think that's, that's really interesting. But really, your point of view was very interesting in the sense that we see quite often the water industry as a silo working on its own. And it's good to see that we are not alone in this world. There is an upper picture. And as much as I keep repeating on that microphone that we've never seen a water unicorn, never happened, uh, we've never seen an environmental unicorn neither. So sustainability is not really doing much better to that sense than, than the water sector. And probably there are synergies to leverage. I mean, there are so many clever ideas in energy which you could transfer to water or in transportation or in climates that you could just apply in water instead of reinventing the wheel all the time. So that was at least for me very, very interesting. So thanks a lot for your time, both of you. And whenever you publish your next paper, I have at least half of my questions about the the previous paper, which I can still ask you. I'm sure I'm going to have double the ones for, for the new one. <laughs> it was a pleasure discussing. Would be our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Florian, Julian, and talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time. Yeah.